Well, good evening, everybody, while we're getting set up here. Um, again, it's a joy to be with you this evening. If you have your Bibles, turn to... Um, yeah, I think that'll be yours. Thanks, Noah. Uh, turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2. Um, our focus tonight is thinking about the gospel, and um, I set aside this chapter to think with you about what the gospel is and and how um, we have a merciful God that seeks souls. In um, chapter 2, verse 1, we read, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Achaia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. Now we haven't heard of Rahab before. She was uh, a pagan in Canaan. Um, as we'll get into the rest of the chapter, we'll see that the inhabitants of Jericho knew very much what God was doing uh, with the Israelites. Uh, they will find out that they knew about God opening the Red Sea. Uh, they knew about all the victories that God's people had had going up to Transjordan. And um, Rahab had a heart that was prepared to seek the Lord. And uh, when we think about these spies, and no doubt they were disguised, they were trying to fit in. Um, you know, they hadn't been in Canaan before, and no doubt they were trying to look the part. And uh, they come to Jericho. Uh, we know from archaeological evidence, Jericho was about nine acres, okay? Eighth of a mile by eighth of a mile. Not that big of a city. Um, they come to the house of a harlot. Uh, strange men coming into the house of a harlot may not be too suspicious. But I want to think with you about why Rahab's house? Why Rahab's house? Did God tell Joshua to send spies into Cana? No. Joshua thought... You know, it'd be good to get some information about Jericho. You know, we got to battle against the city and, and the land. And so he sends spies in to gather information. But that's not what God had tended to do with the spies. This is the thing I love about the Lord. We have our best thinking, and sometimes we put our, what we think is our best foot forward. And the, the Lord says, well, it doesn't really matter what you're going to do. I have my plans. And so he is going to use these two spies uh, to save a whole houseful of pagans that have a heart that is repented and turned to the Lord. And he's going to use the information gained by the spies, not for a battle plan, but to encourage his people that God has already prepared the way for them. I have seen this over and over again, where there is a seeking sinner there is a seeking Savior. God's heart wants heaven full of saved sinners. His son, he sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bear the penalty for all sin. And it's uh, humbling to think as we walk down the street and we see people, the Lord Jesus bled and died for that person. The Lord Jesus bled and died for that person. It gives you a different perspective. Um, 
About 15 years ago, uh, the Workers and Elders Conference was at Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, I was speaking at the conference. I bought tickets a couple months in advance. I was going to fly United. This is when we lived in Wisconsin. Uh, and uh, I was going to fly out of Minneapolis, connect a flight Chicago right into Fort Lauderdale. Four and a half hours there. It looked really good. I got notification from United that they had uh, changed me and were going to route me through Denver. That makes no sense at all to me, but when you fly a lot, you just go with it, right? So I get to the airport, and I find out that my flight to Denver has been delayed. I'm going to miss my connection. So I waited in the United line. They said, we don't have any other options, um, but you can go down to our affiliate, US Air, and uh, stand in their line, and they may have a flight for you. So I did. Stood in the line, got up there and says, well, we can route you through Charlotte, but United has to release your ticket. So I went back, stood in the United line, released the ticket, went back, stood in the U.S. airline. Huge line at security. I finally got through. I was running to the concourse and the gate to catch this flight to Charlotte. And uh, I got there and there was nobody, not a plane, anything. I thought, what is going on? I look on the display, and I had, go, I had gone to the wrong concourse and wrong gate. Now, I've flown hundreds of thousands of miles. That's never happened to me. I am sweating, and I was running. I mean, I'm a mess already. And so, wow, it's only about a third of a mile. Maybe I can still make it. So I started running to the gate. I get there, and the, paint, the plane is pushed back from the jetway. And I remember talking to the lady there, uh, U.S. Air, said, how can I get to Fort Lauderdale? She just says, you know, here in about 45 minutes, we get a flight going to Philadelphia. And uh, we can route you to Fort Lauderdale, and you'll get there only an hour and a half late, later than you would have. I said, you know, Chicago, Denver, Charlotte, Philadelphia, I don't care as long as I get to Fort Lauderdale. So she rebooked me on that. And uh, I sat down in the... the, the uh, the waiting area there, and I, I was wiping the sweat off my brow, and I, I prayed. I said, Lord, I have seen this before. This is too crazy. You got your hand all into this. Something is going on. Let me know what it is. Let me be a part of it. I get on this flight to Philadelphia. It is packed. I had an aisle seat. I ended up with a, a window seat. I'm sitting next to a man named Ryan, as I found out later. As we're flying out of Minneapolis, I look over, and Ryan is reading a book on anger. It's a Christian book on anger. And it's one of the books that I read on anger when I wrote my book. And guess where he was, just happened to be in that book. How God's anger was satisfied with the work of his son at the cross over sin. And I said, now I know, Lord. And uh, so I leaned over to Ryan. I said, uh, Ryan, what do you think of this book? I didn't know his name then. I said, what do you think of the book? He introduced himself. He says, it's pretty good. I said, do you understand what you're reading? He says, well, not really. I went into the gospel for 10 minutes. And I said, do you have any questions? He said, somebody's trying to tell me something. He said, I was just on a flight from Fargo to Minneapolis, and a man sat in that same chair and told me the same thing, and he pulled out the gospel track that that man gave him. 
I said, Ryan, let me tell you what God did to put me in this chair. <laughs> and when I did, he started shaking. Now, what is the probability of all that? I see, I'm a math guy. I'm an engineer. I like those kind of things. That's way out there, right? Can we all agree on that? His name's Ryan. I gave him gospel literature, too. I said, read both of them. I mean, it was solid, good stuff. Um, this is a God who loves to save. And if you're seeking, if there's something in your heart, and uh, you don't know the Lord, but he's drawing you through circumstances. He's drawing you through creation. The man's a creator. He's, he's speaking to you through your conscience. If you feel guilt, that's sin. Right? That's Paul's argument in Romans chapter 2. If your conscience goes off once, ding, 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 that proves you're a sinner and you're guilty before God. He knows to do right and does not a sin. And so God gives us that conscience as a calling card. He gives us his law to show us sin, what it is, to show us that he is perfect and we are not, to open our eyes to the big picture. And so he's drawing, he's calling, he's bringing all kinds of experiences into our lives to try to bring us to himself. Drawing us through his spirit, drawing us through other Christians, and so forth. Well, I believe that these spies were guided by the Lord to the one house in Jericho where there was a prepared heart that was willing to submit to the truth. And I'll show you that as we, we go through the text. A harlot you know, God is, he's no respecter of persons. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, um, there's no difference, right? God's minimum daily standard to get into heaven is perfection. How you doing, right? Naturally speaking, none of us are perfect. We've all broken his law. So, God leads them to uh, the house of a harlot. Now, tomorrow, when we look at the Battle of Jericho, I'm going to show you from archaeological evidence that uh, Rahab's house must have been on the north wall. That's the only part of the whole wall around Jericho that didn't collapse. So you can see, again, God's hand, his sovereign hand in all these things, uh, leading to a house and then preserving that house through the judgment. Verse 2, and it was told to the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight, children of Israel, to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you and have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark, the men went out. And when the men went, I do not know, pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. For she had brought, uh, for she had brought them up into the roof, hid them uh, with the stalks of flax, which she had laid over uh, in order on the roof. And the men pursued them by the road to Jericho, to the fords, and as soon as they had pursued them, had gone out, they shut the gate. Okay, a point of clarification. I mean, Rahab tells a whopper here, right? I mean, there's not much truth in what she said. 
Uh, scripture never condones lying. Uh, Ephesians 4, we're to put away all lying. But this is a pagan who is being introduced to the true God. And she is going to plead for mercy. Um, God doesn't condone her, her lying, but he does condone her faith. Listen to this. Look, look what she says in... By the way, uh, she takes the, the uh, spies up on the roof. Flax was um, about three feet tall, as thick as a cane. And she has it out, laid out on the, the roof to dry, and it would make a nice little canopy to hide the spies under. So she chooses to hide the spies, risks her own life, and then she redirects the king's men to follow phantoms to the Jordan that never existed. Uh, the spies were in her own house. Why did she do it? You know, Hebrews chapter eleven thirty one says this, Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. She did not perish with those who did not believe. Well, what is it that they didn't believe? Well, let's go on in the text. Verse 9, and said to the men, she's speaking to the spies, I know, if you underline in your Bible, I want you to underline that word, I know, that the Lord has given you the land that the terror of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For, and I want you to underline this, we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Shion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted, neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, listen to this, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father and my mother and my brother and my sisters and all that, have, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. Wow, isn't that a great plea? The problem was not information, was it? Everybody in Jericho was aware of the Israelites and what God had done for them and bringing them out of Egypt, opening up the Red Sea, all the victories that they had in the Transjordan area. Uh, everybody understood the facts. Now, how did the inhabitants of Jericho respond? They fortified themselves. They understood that God was giving them the land, but they resisted the truth. They fortified themselves. We can resist. We can overcome Israel's God. Rahab took a different approach. God, I want mercy. I know you're the true God. I know that you're a God that will extend mercy. And so she begs these two spies, swear to me by the Lord, this is Jehovah, since I have shown kindness to you, you will show kindness to me. She had risked her life to save their lives, and so she's saying, I, please save my life and the, the life of my loved ones. And the men swear it. They say, our lies for years. This is a Jewish idiom. It just says, 
We're giving you our word. It's punishable by death. We break it. And she says, I want a token. I want a sign of this salvation, of this deliverance that you're promising. We get to that in just a few verses. She lets them down by the rope. She says, go to the mountains in verse 16. Hide for three days. We talked about that this morning. Then you go to Jordan. So they go the opposite direction as their pursuers. No doubt they were looking to the east of Jericho for these two spies. And the men say to her in verse 17, we will be blameless of our oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. And we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a man lay on him, if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath which you made us swear." Then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. She wanted a sign of this agreement. She wanted to sign something that was tangible she could see that would be a reminder, a pledge of what these two spies uh, had promised to do. And it was a scarlet, thor- uh, scarlet cord. Tikvah is the Hebrew word here for scarlet. And uh, there was a scarlet grub that they would smash, and uh, they would take, sorry, the guts of this worm, and that's what they would make a dye out of to get the scarlet color. And in Psalm 22, verse 6, which is a messianic psalm talking about the Lord Jesus suffering on the cross, he says, I am a worm. Because that's exactly what happened with the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son. God sent His Son into the world. He was born of a virgin, the eternal Son of God, fully man, fully God. And He lived a perfect life for 33 plus years to show that He was the perfect sacrifice. He willingly went to the cross, and there He was smashed, and the blood came out. And when we appropriate that work by faith, then we receive redemption and forgiveness with God. The Lord Jesus took my sin and your sin upon him, and when we trust the gospel message, God puts his righteousness to our account. It's called justification in Scripture. It's a great trade, my sin for God's righteousness. And then I have a position of righteousness before God. I become a child of God. I'm his forever to enjoy this love relationship that we've been thinking about the last two days together about. So Rahab says, I, I, wanna, I want this token. And it was a, a line of scarlet thread or a cord. And the, the spies say, listen, if, if, if you're in the house and you have this scarlet cord hanging up, everyone in your house will be saved. But if they go outside the house and their, their blood is on their own heads. And if you tell anybody about this, so that brought everybody else in the family into exercising faith, into uh, Rahab's method of salvation, which was pleading for mercy. What did Rahab do? 
It says in verse 21, she bound the scarlet cord in the window. She didn't wait. She didn't know when the Israelites were going to come and attack. She did not want to take a chance on missing the only deliverance that would save her and her family. And so she hangs that scarlet thread on her, the outer window of her, uh, her home. All could see it. The Israelites could see it. Everyone that came into that home, the token of blood, so to speak, the shed blood of Christ and pictured there, all under the blood, all were saved. And so she doesn't waste any time. I want to tell you about two people the Lord brought into my life. And they had two drastically different endings. Uh, when I was in uh, engineering college, I worked at an alternative energies company. I worked there two more years before I got into aerospace engineering. And um, I was training a man named Jamie to try to offload me in some of the electrical work and so forth. And uh, I'd spent a couple weeks with Jamie, and uh, it was uh, a Friday. We uh, started talking about spiritual things, and he was very unreceptive. Jamie was a pothead. He basically spent most of his life stoned. I came into work Monday morning. Everybody was pretty sober. I said, what's going on? And they said, Jamie died Friday night. He was out partying, got stoned, was jamming down. He got back to his home, pulled into the garage, put down the door, but he just kept jamming and he forgot to turn the car off. And he died of carbon monoxide poisoning. Barring any kind of a miracle, uh, that, that man is in Hades now, and he will bow the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment, and the Lord Jesus will be honored. He will confess him as Lord, and then he'll be cast into the lake of fire. And I've never forgotten him all these years. Mark 9, the Lord says, the lake of fire is a place of eternal burning. The fire is never quenched. He says it's a, the worm never dies. It's a putrid place. Jude tells us it's the blackness of night. The Lord Jesus told his disciples uh, just three days before he was crucified on the Mount of Olives that the lake of fire was created to punish the devil and his followers, the fallen angels. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that is where your eternal destiny will be. The entrance to hell, there could well be a sign over it that says, no second chances, no mercy, no love, no God. God doesn't want you to go there. He's done everything he can to save you. But God's a perfect gentleman. He will force no one into heaven who doesn't want to be there. Heaven would be hell if you didn't want to be there. A bunch of people that love the Lord Jesus want to sing and praise him. A place of eternal agony, burning, darkness, 
putrid and where Satan himself will be with all the fallen angels of heaven. Why would anybody want to go to a place like that? God says, I'm a holy judge, I'm a holy God, I must judge sin. And so the beauty of the gospel message is simply this. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, he's not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation unto whoever believes. And then he goes on to say, um, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that by conscience. If you've broken one part of the law, you're a lawbreaker in God's uh, mind. There's only one way to get to heaven, and that is through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I mentioned this two years ago. There's basically, um, on the planet right now, there are religious systems which are doing, doing, doing systems. Somehow i got to improve myself. Uh, Hinduism, I, I want to have positive karma and, and work my way up to become part of the impersonal all. Or Wicca, in tune with creation. Whatever it is, it's doing, 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 self-improvement, self-saving efforts. Biblical Christianity says it's done, done, done. You can't do anything to save yourself. God's done all the work. Rahab came to the point where she realized, if I don't plead for mercy, I'm going to die. And my family's going to die. She knew the truth. Everybody had heard but she says, I know. And that's the difference. You know, Jeff was talking about 18 inches, the difference between the, the heart and the head. There are a lot of people trying to approach uh, Christ through intellectual arguments. It'll never work. You know, I was here two years ago. I talked about uh, biblical prophecies and the astronomically impossible numbers of Christ fulfilling all those prophecies. Uh, God has given us an incredible evidence of the truth. We can reckon it, we can verify it with our senses, we can rationalize, we can, we can think through it, and, and it's proof. But when it comes to salvation, God says, you've got to rise above that and just take me at my word. That's faith. And we read in Hebrews 11 that without that kind of faith, it's impossible to please God. That's the kind of faith that that Rahab is showing us here in Joshua chapter 2. By the way, it's quite likely, according to Matthew 1.5, Rahab married a man in Judah called uh, Solomon, and um, it's quite likely, there's no other Rahab mentioned in, uh, in the Bible, that she's in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. How incredible is that? That God would save a pagan harlot and bring her into the genealogy of the tribe of Judah, right through David, all the way to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's incredible. And God wants to do with that, that with your life. He doesn't, he just doesn't want to save you. He wants you to be a part of his sovereign plans. He wants to bring himself glory through your life. He wants you to uh, experience him in his goodness. Two people I want to tell you about. One was Jamie, the second is Pat. Pat was um, the mother of one of the men in our meeting that made a profession of faith, Scott, and uh, we've been praying for her. She was dying of cancer, 
but she was resistant to the gospel. I tried several times to get with Pat, but she um, declined. And then one evening, Brenda and I had climbed into bed, probably 10:15 at night. Scott calls and says, "My mom wants to see you." I said, "It'll take me 30 minutes to get there." So I started getting dressed, and um, he called back just a couple minutes later. Says, "Well, she's on morphine and she's out again." I said, "Let's try first thing in the morning. Let's pray that she'll be alert." So um, I got dressed, took a step of faith, went to the hospital, got there at about 8:30. And Pat was sitting up in bed, fully alert. I talked to her for two hours, went through the gospel, and she trusted Christ as her Savior. She says, I don't know why I've been so resistant. I'm dying. I need to be saved before I die. And she asked me to take her funeral. I said, this is my test. I said, on one, one condition, I get to tell everybody what you've done here today. She goes, oh, I want you to. You know, that, that was a proof. I left the hospital at 10.30, 10.45 that morning. Pat entered eternity at 4.30 in the afternoon. If she'd waited a few more hours, she'd be in hell. If you don't know the Lord, make the night, this night the night that you cry out for mercy. It's good to see some kids here. And I just want to talk to you for a minute. Some of you, have, you've been following your parents into the church buildings for years, following in their shadow. There's a time when you're going to have to pop your head out from that shadow and say, who am I? What do I believe? Who is the Lord? The faith of your parents will not get you into heaven. You need to make a decision to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have believing parents, I know they're praying for you. And uh, it was a joy to see our children come to Christ at an early age. I remember talking to Michael Trey. He was uh, about three years old. I got up, this is when I was still in engineering. And uh, I was downstairs shaving, getting going to work. And he got up early, he was still came down as one piece, Winnie the Pooh pajamas. I still remember the whole scene and I'm there shaving and... He's looking at me and he says, Dad, does, does Katie have salvation? And I looked over and I said, yes, Katie has trusted Jesus Christ as uh, her Savior. And I just kept shaving and he says, does Matthew Jordan have salvation? And I said, yes, Michael Trey, I believe Matthew has salvation. I believe he's trusted Christ as Savior. He'll be in heaven. I knew it was coming. Does Michael Trey have salvation? And I put the razor down and I got on at his level and I just explained the gospel as simply as I could to him. I don't know if he got saved. I think he made about six or seven professions before they got one stuck. But God was moving them. And uh, tonight might be a night that God is moving you towards him too. I would plead with you, don't wait another minute if you don't know the Lord. You don't know how much time you have here. He's a loving God. He wants to show you mercy. Follow Rahab's example and, and choose life versus death. 
Would you pray with me? I just ask every eye closed, every head bowed, every eye closed. And Lord, we've been talking about really important things tonight. We've been talking about the need of salvation. Lord, most of the people here I don't know, and there's probably some here that don't know your Son as Savior. And I pray, Father, you might be speaking to them right now. Now's the time to cry out and say, I want to be saved. I don't want to go to the lake of fire. I don't want to make a mess of my life. I don't want to pursue my own things anymore. I just want to have a relationship with a good God and experience him. Father, I pray that you would be prompting, convicting, drawing, wooing, just as you drew those spies to Rahab to bring her the offer of salvation. If you're here tonight and, and you feel that God is calling you and you've been resisting and now you're giving up and you say, I want mercy and you want to be saved, I just want to ask you quietly, just put your hand up in the air so I can see. God is a patient God. He's long-suffering, drawing, offering you salvation. Maybe you're here tonight, and you have been living a lie. You're not living for the Lord. Brother Jeff was telling us about how he's living for all the wrong things. And maybe tonight might be a night of rededication that you can experience God's life. If that's you, just lift your hand. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Praise the Lord. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you. All right, you can put your hands down. Father, I know you're working right now. You're drawing. And there may be some here that are close to receiving the Savior. I pray, Father, that you would haunt their mind, not enable them to sleep. Put the horror of hell, put the, the righteous holiness of your spirit in their mind. Let them have no waking moment, Lord, until they do business with you and come to the Savior. Uh, Father, for those who raise their hand tonight that are living a lie, that want to get right with you, I pray that they might just uh, be faithful to their commitment, that this might be the night of mortification. It might be the night in which it's a new beginning. And I pray, Father, you would bless them for their step taken tonight in acknowledging failure but wanting to experience a good God in mercy. Father, I thank you for this quiet place. I thank you for uh, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you for the salvation that we have in him. He's a beautiful Savior. And, oh God, we just close our time out by saying, he is Lord of lords, King of kings. We can't wait to see him. We love him. We praise him. We honor him. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.